God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest today is Marcus Watson. Marcus has been a Presbyterian pastor for almost 20 years, currently serving as an interim pastor of Westmoreland Community Presbyterian Church in the small farming community of Westmoreland, California. Marcus is also the host of the Spiritual Life and Leadership Podcast and is the author of Beyond Thingification, Helping Your Church Engage in God's Mission. Marcus lives in San Diego, California with his wife and three kids. And I'm thrilled to welcome you to the podcast today, Marcus Watson. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? I'm glad to be here. Man, thanks so much for making time for this conversation. We usually start off by talking to folks about their spiritual backstory. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah, I, so I was. Uh, my dad is actually a Presbyterian pastor. He's retired now. But yeah, so I grew up going to church uh, in the Presbyterian uh, denomination. Yeah, there was never a time that I can remember that I didn't believe in Jesus. We, we, would, we would call ourselves evangelical Presbyterians. You know, there's a, a wide diversity in terms of theology within the Presbyterian denomination, but we would fall on the more evangelical side. And so, you know, volitional decisions to, to follow Jesus are, are important. My mom tells me that when I was three or four years old, I prayed a prayer and, and said, Dear Jesus, you know, bedtime prayers, Dear Jesus, I really, 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 really want to be your child. That's how she tells me I said it. And she says, I think that's when you became a Christian. I said, well, good. I maybe, sure. I think maybe it was. It was something. It was certainly a step in my journey, you know, and grew up knowing about Jesus, you know, learning all the stories. I remember being in fourth grade and I went to, I was at a Christian school for that year, just for that year. We had Bible quizzes, you know, every week. And I did fantastic on those Bible quizzes because I knew all the stories so well. And there was a moment where I helped our team win this, you know, this challenge, this this game show kind of a thing. And I kind of put my fists up in the air and, you know, victory. And my teacher kind of looked at me and kind of shook her head like, no, 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 don't do that. (laughs) But I felt very good about that. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, at the age of 12, uh, attended a Billy Graham crusade with uh, my family in LA. Well, you know, I I didn't feel like I wasn't a Christian, but I thought "Eh, I'm going to make a decision to follow Jesus since I'm old enough to, to do that now. And I know what I'm doing. And so I went down and my brother went, went forward with me. He was a couple years younger than me. And it, that that didn't change my faith, but I'm like, yeah, you know, that was one of my one of my steps. So that's kind of that's kind of how I grew up. I uh, in in high school, I would say that I was the good Christian kid. I was the preacher's kid. You know, I was never a rebellious preacher's kid. Actually, my parents, you know, we we're evangelical, but I suppose you know. I, Presbyterian evangelical may be different from, let's say, Baptist evangelical. My parents didn't pressure me to be this perfect preacher's kid. Uh, I always felt like they loved me, but there was a lot of freedom in that love as well. And so I never felt like I actually had anything to rebel against, which was good. But I was a very judgmental kid in high school. I can remember, you know, being on uh, mission trips with uh, our youth group and 
sometimes we would listen to secular music in the van. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, come on, come on, this is a church trip. You know, we should be listening to Petra and Whiteheart and DeGarmo and Key. And uh, <laughs> why are we listening? To Let's make all of our, you know, not really Christian kids in this group listen to the Christian music so that they can, you know, uh, get saved or whatever, you know. And right. uh, yeah, that's kind of that's where I, I was at in high school. And then... Uh, got into college. In college, uh, I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, which, you know, was a great experience. Um, some of my lifelong since college friends, you know, are, are still in communication with them. We're, uh, we're all over the country now, but it's, you know, that was a good, a good time. And I really did grow in my faith. I really did feel like I came to know Jesus in a much deeper way. That's where I, where my faith became my own, right? Uh, it was no longer my parents' faith. It was, it was mine. And uh, I grew in some of my uh, leadership abilities, led a Bible study. You know, I, uh, I learned to share the four spiritual laws. I got really good at that and uh, <laughs> was able to, to sell it. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, whether or not it's an effective tool these days, and uh, I have an interesting story about the four spiritual laws. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a sec if you're interested. Okay, yeah. It, it, it was formative for me in, in terms of at least being able to talk about God and about Jesus. It's not a tool that I use anymore or that I would, that I think is particularly effective these days. And, and I'm not even sure that it communicates the whole gospel, but it was formative for me in terms of at least uh, getting used to talking about God, which of course I do as a, as a pastor now. Okay. So you talked about a period while you were in college where you sort of took ownership of your faith. You, yeah. you it came, became more personal and deep for you. What changed for you as a result of that experience? And do you remember a specific experience that you had that triggered that? Uh, sorry, so that triggered, what, what exactly? The, this personal ownership of you, taking ownership of your faith, rather than just having an inherited faith that was passed down from your parents, you started to have a faith of your own. Yeah, well, you know, I think part of it is is age. Uh, I think developmentally, that's what happens when you get into your late teens, early 20s. Uh, you start to think a lot more about what do I actually believe? And you think more critically, and I don't mean necessarily negatively, but just you critique your your family's beliefs and, and the way you've been brought up. And so I think that was part of it. And then, uh, you know, you're away from your family and you uh, sort of engage in whatever group you engage in during your college years. And for me, that was Campus Crusade. And then the fact that I was I was taking, you know, some leadership roles. And so I had to be clear as to whether or not I really believed it. And so for me, it was, uh, I don't know that I could say it was a particular moment that changed that, but it was just part of the whole process of my, you know, of my growing in in faith at that time. Now, I know in your intro, we talked about you being in pastoral ministry for 20 years. So obviously that's been a huge part of your life. Growing up in a pastor's home, did you ever resent the fact that your dad was in ministry? Mm. So again, so my my story is a, maybe a little bit different than some others. I didn't ever resent it uh, because in my case, I feel like my dad was a, a good dad and family came first. And I remember him, 
telling me uh, and our family that he came home from a a meeting, maybe it was a session meeting with our elders, and someone was complaining about something that my brother and I had done. And he was like, hey, you let them be kids, right? They're kids. And so you don't need to worry about that. I'll take care of that. Anyway, right. So, so I did feel good about that. I didn't resent my dad being in ministry. And what's really interesting is my parents always said, Marcus, don't go into ministry. It's too hard. <laughs> and so I actually resisted going into ministry for a long time. Well, I should say it never even crossed my mind uh, that I would become a pastor. Actually, I wanted to be, when I was young, I wanted to be a movie star. And when I got into high school and college, I was like, no, actually, I want to be a movie director. Uh, and I actually worked in Hollywood for a couple of times, uh, a couple of years as a production assistant. So bottom of the totem pole, uh, worked on some TV specials at the time and some music videos. I got to work on a Muppets music video, which was super fun. But that was also a really formative time for me. I developed a love-hate relationship with Hollywood, right? Hollywood was, it was great, it was fun, but there was this kind of like a, a dark, yucky side to it. There was a, a sense that, you know, if you're at the top, man, you get treated like you're at the top. And if you're at the bottom, well, you get treated like you're at the bottom. And it became really clear for me once, kind of a funny story. I was working on a show called LAPD, which was like a ripoff of Cops, which would, I'm sure, be canceled today. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but I was supposed to drop off this script to uh, one of the hosts. And uh, the host at the time was also uh, one of the secondary characters on what was the show NYPD Blue. And um, and so I was supposed to drop it off at his condo and I went and I dropped it off at the wrong place. Uh -oh. And, you know, there's we didn't quite have email yet. And yeah, so I came back and they're like, he said he didn't get it. I was like, I dropped it off and I, you know, I knocked on the door, but I put it through the mail slot or whatever. And and then the, the producer's like, you can't make mistakes like this. He's a star. And then he goes, well, he's not a star, but he is a celebrity. And in my mind, I'm like, thinking, oh, so there's a difference. Okay, so a star gets this much respect. A celebrity, he's just a celebrity, right? And of course, I was just a production assistant down at the bottom. <laughs> that was part of it. And um, so the way uh, that whole Hollywood thing ended was I was working at a company called, well, called Creative Domain. I don't think they exist anymore. They, they did movie trailers and it was a temp job. So I got, a, you know, it was two or three weeks, maybe four weeks with a possibility of going permanent. And I thought, yeah, this would be great. It'd be fun. And then after my assignment finished, they said, well, we're not going to keep you. And I said, oh, why not? You know, is there something I could have done? And uh, the guy said, well, you could have offered to stay late. The implication being without extra pay, right? And that just sort of reflects the mentality. You got to earn your dues. You got to work for free. And I, I, it was after that and, and some other experiences that I was like, Ugh, I think I'm done with Hollywood. And that was for me, one of the most painful experiences of my life uh, to let go of Hollywood, because that was a dream that had been with me really for as long as I could live, uh, for, as, for as long as I could remember, as long as I lived. And so I decided this was uh, summer of 1996. OK, I'm either going to get a master's degree in communication from a Christian university, right, or I'm going to uh, go on staff with Campus Crusade, Crusade or I'll go to seminary. And those first two options I could have done, you know, started by the following January or seminary. Well, I could start that in the fall. So uh, I enrolled at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena and got in for the fall and started. And 
loved it, actually. And uh, Fuller's a good place. You know, Fuller is multi-denominational, multi-ethnic, all kinds of experiences in terms of different kinds of relationships. And the things that I was learning for me at that time, I was like, I can't believe I get to learn this stuff, you know theology of the early church, medieval theology, you know, I, that was my one of my first classes. And I was like, this is fantastic. And uh, and then I ended up, and so, you know, the, as part of the journey goes, God didn't waste those desires and dreams and skills that I had developed in, in my pursuit of Hollywood. I ended up being the video production coordinator at Fuller Seminary. And so I still got to do what I love to do without the dark side of uh, Hollywood. <laughs> and so that was, that was great. Did that for about seven years and then ended up getting, uh, anyway, becoming a pastor. There's a story there in terms of my ordination as well, uh, the process of becoming a pastor. I actually resisted becoming a pastor even while I was at, at Fuller. I went to Fuller thinking, you know, maybe I'll do some kind of media ministry. And so that was my focus. Uh, I wanted to do some kind of media ministry, but never thought in my mind that I would uh, be a pastor, right? And the only reason I started the ordination process was because a friend of mine came in to work where I was working, and he said, hey, Marcus, and he's kind of a mentor to me, he's about 10 years older, but also a student at Fuller and in the ordination process. He said, Marcus, here's the paperwork to start the ordination process. Fill it out. I'll turn it in for you. And I was like, ah, okay. I mean, I guess I might as well keep my options open. <laughs> so I did. And I I squeezed a two-year process into four years. <laughs> and in fact, uh, the part of the reason uh, it took that long was because as I was going, you know, the committee that oversees the process was like, yeah, you're not quite ready yet, you know, for the next step. And so they kind of slowed down my pace. And really, it wasn't until... I had gotten married and um, had graduated that finally I was like, all right, you know, I guess I guess I need to finish this. And it, it did feel like a calling, you know, at the time I, I was at a uh, I mean, and it was a calling. Um, I was I was at um, a Good Friday service and we ended the prayer, the, the service with a prayer by St. Augustine. And the prayer started with the words, late have I loved you. And I just thought to myself, uh, yep. That's me. I've been very slow in actually loving God and submitting to this calling that I have felt for some time, but didn't want to give into it. And so I said, okay, Lord, that's it. I'm all in. I'll finish this process and then go wherever you want me to go, you know? And so, so I finished the process that summer and uh, got ordained, you know, interviewed with some churches. And in Presbyterian denomination, you don't get ordained until a church actually calls you, right? That's sort of the the evidence then in the end that, okay, you've been called. You've been called now to this church. And so I got ordained the following spring and moved to Kentucky, serve as an associate pastor out there for a few years. And then uh, from Kentucky, moved to San Diego to be a, a solo pastor for, well, I was there, for, I'm still in San Diego. I was at this particular church for eight and a half years. And then that's where the story gets a little bit nuts uh, <laughs> and uh, ended up. Yeah, definitely want to def definitely want to talk about that. Uh, many people that we speak to have left pastoral ministry. The way you describe the dark side of Hollywood is the way they talk about church. Yeah, you're yeah. still in local church ministry, but I'm sure there's been times when you wanted to quit. I know that when I was a pastor, there was that Monday morning syndrome. <laughs> you know, you preached the message that you thought was going to change everybody's life and there's no response. And, and so you just wonder, is it worth it? What's kept you working in the local church? Well, okay. So 
I, I feel like I need to tell the story of what happened in my last church because I actually did leave pastoral ministry for uh, about two years. And during those two years, I wasn't sure if I would ever go back uh, because I had such a painful experience in my last church. Absolutely. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I had been there for about, after I'd been there for about seven years, I, I took a sabbatical. You know, a, a lot of, I don't know how it is in other traditions, a lot of Presbyterian churches give their pastors, uh, you know, like a two to three month sabbatical every seven years or so. My particular church was resistant to that, or, or I should say a, a good portion of our congregation was resistant to giving me a sabbatical. But I was getting burned out, and I think that's a lot of pastors' stories. They get burned out, and at a certain point, they either quit or they just don't care anymore, right? And so I made the case. Uh, I, I need a sabbatical. And so anyway, it was approved, but it was a it was a challenge to get that approved. About two weeks, maybe two or three weeks into my sabbatical, I got a call from our executive presbyter, who is uh, kind of the, he's not a bishop, but he's the guy who oversees our region of, uh, you know, our San Diego Presbytery, uh, 30-some churches in our, in our presbytery. And he called me and uh, he said, hey, Marcus, I need to talk to you. And uh, I said, uh, can we meet, you know, tomorrow? This was on a Friday afternoon. Can we meet tomorrow? I was like, oh, no, you know, I'm going up to Los Angeles to visit my brother and some friends and I can't do tomorrow. How about next week? He said, no, I really need to meet with you. Can you change your plans? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm on sabbatical right now. These are plans that I've made. Everyone's expecting me to come. You know, we can meet next week. And he said, you know, I really need to meet with you. How about Sunday? And I was like, let me let me talk to my wife. So anyway, so we ended up meeting with him and he came to our house with uh, another person. He said, Marcus, someone in your church has accused you of having a problem with pornography. And I was like, oh, okay. Full disclosure, it's not like I've never looked at pornography in my life. And I think that it is you know, it's a problem for men in general. And so I've had accountability software on my, uh, on all my devices for many years. You know, at that time, this was now five years ago, I uh, had already, you know, been in accountability and had accountability software and all of that. And so I wasn't really concerned about where this was going to go. But I was like, okay, well, what do you need to do? He said, well, we need to do a forensic analysis on your laptop. Uh, and I was like, wow, okay, do you want it right now? And he said, that would be good. So I gave it to him. Now, part of the pro problem here is that, you know, we Presbyterians have a process for everything. <laughs> and uh, uh, there is a process for if someone makes an accusation against anyone in the church, pastor or elder or even another, you know, member of the congregation. If there's an accusation made against a pastor, then there's supposed to be an investigative committee, you know, that determines whether or not the charges, you know, are valid. And if so, then they would take it to an ecclesiastical trial, so to speak. Well, our executive presbyter wanted to do this sort of under the table. And maybe he was wanting to protect me. I don't know. But it was, it did not help me. So they ended up giving it to someone, the authorities, or actually it wasn't the authorities yet. <laughs> it was this analyst. And after a couple of weeks, he said, it would only take a few days. I was like, okay, I can handle that for a few days. Three weeks later, I finally got a call from him after me trying to reach out to him several times. He said, well, uh, the analysis is done, but I can't give you your laptop back because it's uh, because it's been handed off to the authorities and it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. It's like, what are you talking about? And I could not fathom, you know, where this was coming from. Now, of course, I'm thinking, 
<laughs> several things, you know, because of the, the nature of the accusations, um, pornography, I'm thinking child pornography, but I have never, right, <laughs> never viewed that. Right. Uh, but I'm also thinking, are there bomb making instructions, <laughs> which I've also never, you know, <laughs> accessed or something like that, you know? Um, now, one of the things I did know was that our tech guy had in the last year or so become uh, one of, my, you know, a nemesis to me, so to speak, in the church. And I was like, did he plant something on my laptop, you know? So that just led to a really, really dark period for me. And I was still on sabbatical. Uh, by the time I got that call, I was, ha I'd say, halfway through my sabbatical. And I just, I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, the authorities, I found out later, just before my sabbatical ended, that it was the FBI that had my laptop. And I, I just couldn't believe it. But one of the blessings during that time was that I, I have a friend uh, who's another pastor in our presbytery, and he's actually my accountability partner. So he gets, you know, he still, even to this day, gets reports every uh, every week, or maybe it's every, every, more than that. But he really went to bat for me, right? And he called, he made phone calls on my behalf. He made, sent emails on my behalf, you know, said, you can't do this. Even got a pastor from one of the bigger churches in our presbytery and they met with the executive presbyter. They said, stop, we have a process for this. Just start over and do it the right way. And he's like, no, no, my advisors have told me this is how I have to do it. And anyway, it, it led to a time, like I said, of really uh, a really dark period for me and, you know, feelings of abandonment, not only from my denomination, but from, from God too. I was like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Like, what are you, what are you doing? And it really, it really attacked me at the point of my self-worth. You know, I was in a, a fairly small church, about a hundred people or so in our, in our presbytery. And I, I remember thinking to myself, they wouldn't do this to so-and-so from that big church or, or so-and-so from that church, but they'll do it to me from, you know, my little church, I felt like I was denied my due process in all of this. And at the same time, this whole process was really, really transformative for me. I can remember sitting on the patio outside my house, and I spent a lot of time praying in scripture because, well, what else was I going to do? After having spent some time, uh, you know, reading uh, kind of Lectio Divina, just sort of sitting with a, a passage from the Psalms, a Psalm of Lament, most likely at that time. And then I just sat there and I, all of a sudden these images started coming to my mind and I just started imagining all the worst case scenarios of what could happen. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, you know, I could lose my job because of this. And I, and I eventually did. <laughs> I thought I could lose my ordination, right? I could become that pastor in this presbytery that people say, oh yeah, you know, you know what happened to Marcus, right? Uh, and then I thought, man, I could, I could lose my family uh, if, if it looks like I'm guilty. Now, I don't actually think I, I would have, <laughs> but uh, you know, my mind was going into all of these worst case scenarios. And then I thought I could become a registered sex offender if, if that's what this is about and if it looks like I'm guilty. And then I thought I could go to prison and I don't know how long I would be there. And then I had this, you know, I just had this picture of myself sitting in a prison cell all by myself with nothing, having lost everything. And then it was like, in that moment, I heard God say, y you could lose everything, but you will never lose my love for you, right? That's the one thing 
no one can ever take away from you. That was utterly transformative. Like that moment, I feel like my life is before that moment and after that moment. Because in that moment, I, now look, I, I knew God loved me and I, I believed that God loved me unconditionally. Of course, I, I told people that all the time. Hey, God loves you unconditionally. <laughs> but it wasn't until that moment that I felt it in a way that I had never felt it before. And, uh, and so that was, I mean, as strange as it is to say, you know, this, that was the gift of this whole experience. Now, kind of, finish kind of just kind of where it all went um i ended up getting a lawyer who thank goodness you know never even charged me she was so kind she said let me just get you some justice you know if we have to do more than this then i'll charge you but let me just send some emails for you and so she was really helpful the first time we met with her though my wife and i you know i told her the story told her what had happened and she she started the meeting by saying look if you're guilty i'm not going to represent you i was like oh okay <laughs> well anyway well let me let me just tell you then so so i told told her you know what was going on and it turned out that she had had some experience with uh, child pornography cases and i i didn't know that someone had just referred me to her because they had worked with her on some other things anyway and then after about an hour uh, of us talking she said to me well i can tell you're not guilty and i was like oh well, how can you tell? She said, well, you're not asking the right questions. If you were guilty, you'd be asking, you know, how much time am I looking at? What's our defense going to be? And you're just asking about when you can get your laptop back. And I was like, oh, wow, thank you. <laughs> it's like this, this burden lifted that somebody can see through, right, all of this. Uh, someone can see through it. And and that was, that was a gift to me, just something that God gave me that uh, it's like, Marcus, you know, uh, I know the truth, right? And there are others here who know the truth as well. And then I mentioned uh, the whole thing about self-worth. My friend Kevin, uh, the other pastor who went to bat for me, he didn't just go to bat for me in terms of, you know, the ecclesiastical legal stuff, but just as a friend, he would call me, text me, you know, about every other day or so, how you doing today? You hanging in there? He'd take me out for drinks, you know, and, uh, and I remember driving home from one of those uh, evenings, you know, we'd gone out to a little sports bar and I was driving home, having let the alcohol settle and all that. <laughs> um, but uh, very important to note when you're talking about driving home after drinks. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, and I just thought to myself, Lord, why, why is Kevin doing this for me? Right. He doesn't have to do that. This is extra time that he's giving that he doesn't have to give. And as I was asking that, it became evident to me that I was like, oh, man, you know, I have this sense that I don't deserve to be loved. And I think that comes from, that does come from my spiritual background. You know, for, I, I realized that for 30 years of my life, meaning since about, you know, high school, middle school, whenever I would sin in some way, I would pray and say, Lord, I, I'm so sorry, I don't deserve your love. And I realized that I had been telling myself that, you know, for 30 years, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your love. And the next morning I was, uh, I, I went out to the beach and was uh, doing a little surfing. I'm not very good at surfing, but it's fun. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I was out in the water and I, uh, I was, was kind of talking to God and I was, 
thinking about this idea that I've been telling myself that I don't deserve God's love. And so I was like, I have to change that. And so I just kept saying, Lord, I deserve your love. And let me simply say this. I, I know I don't, when I say I deserve, what I was really saying was I am worthy of God's love. Of course, I, I haven't done done anything to earn God's love. Deserving implies earning, and I haven't earned God's love, but I am worthy of God's love. And I knew that as I was saying this, but I, I had to use the word deserve because I was trying to undo this idea that I had ingrained in myself that I'm unworthy of God's love, that I don't deserve God's love. So I would say, I just repeated over and over, Lord, I deserve your love. Lord, I deserve your love. And then it became clear that I also had this idea that I don't really deserve other people's love. And so I just started to repeat over and over, Lord, I deserve to be loved. I just deserve to be loved, right? I deserve to be loved. And so that was another kind of one of these things that became just transformative for me, uh, an understanding of the, the, the reality that God loves me no matter what, and no one and nothing can ever take that away from me. And the fact that I'm worthy of that, right? Because I'm a child of God created in the image of God. And then I, I just did some, I read some great books during that time that had already been recommended to me. Um, I've, I have a great therapist <laughs> who was like, let's plan your sabbatical out. Well, the things that we planned were just what I needed. So I read books like uh, Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. I read Surrender to Love by David Benner. I read Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. And all of these books just drove home for me the reality of God's love for me. And um, I got to the end of my sabbatical <laughs> a few days before before I started back to work. Our executive presbyter uh, sent me a text message, and he said, "Hey, Marcus, I have your laptop. When do you want it? You want you know when do you want to come pick it up?" I was like, "Oh, okay, good. So it's over. All right, great." I said, "Well, come, uh, you know, I'll come back. Uh, I'll come by today." And then uh, I told my friend Kevin. He said, "You know, you should check with your lawyer. See if there's anything you know that she recommends as far as this goes." And so I contacted my lawyer, and she said, "Hey, he should not be contacting you directly." And she'd already been frustrated with the fact that we were in communication because there was this investigation going on. She said, "I don't have confirmation yet that this investigation is over. Tell him that he can drop." your laptop off with me. And then, you know, you can come pick it up from me. So I emailed him and I, I told him that I said, you know, due to the fact that we don't know if this investigation is over, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back an email, four words. He said, Marcus, what investigation? And then signed off with his name. And I was like, F you. <laughs> you know, I, I was so pissed off. I was like, what, you're going to pretend like nothing happened? Like there has been, like all of this is just now gone. And, and, and it's like, um, it's like he was trying to protect himself because he certainly exceeded the boundaries of his authority. You know, he was, uh, this was completely inappropriate the way he managed this situation. Now, thankfully he had already announced his resignation. He was moving to another part of the country. I think unrelated to this, but I'm sure it, he was actually probably glad to escape whatever, you know, would have come out of all this for him. And so I only saw him one other time and it was at his uh, goodbye party, so to speak, in our in our presbytery. And I had to leave. <laughs> I couldn't stay there for that. Anyway, so now here's the thing. It actually, the story actually gets worse uh, a little bit. The uh, About a few weeks later, I got my laptop back. And that was great. And then I got uh, a letter from 
the presbytery office hand delivered to me by one of the folks from from on staff there and i opened it up and it said that now new allegations had been made specifically of pornography and child pornography and i was like oh my gosh lord i thought this was over like what what are you doing why is this happening and so basically what happened was the person who made these accusations didn't like the outcome. And because it had been essentially an under-the-table investigation and not on the record, this person was now free to make formal allegations. And so that kicked off uh, the formal investigative process. And actually, um, you know, what's interesting is I was so, like, just I felt wrecked that first day that I got that letter. And afraid again. And then the next day I felt better. And I was like, you know what? God got me through this once. I'll, I'll get through it again. And and it's actually good that we had this formal investigation because the conclusion was that there was no evidence to support these allegations. And so they closed the book on that and, um, and that ended and that's on the record. And so I'm grateful for that. However, I found out that uh, the person who made the allegations was a person on my staff because uh, I was, it was determined that there was no evidence to support the allegations. She then went to our elders and made the same allegations again. Uh, and only a couple of elders knew what had happened, right? It was all pretty much confidential. And I, I shared it with a couple of elders, although I found out that at least one of the elders was also brought in inappropriately into what had happened by the presbytery. And so the, uh, the, the, I met with the session and I told them everything that had happened. And, um, uh, had a timeline that I read to them. I'd been keeping a strict timeline of everything that happened. My friend Kevin came and you know said, "Hey, look, we've been in an accountability relationship for a long time. I can give you years worth of accountability reports if you want to see those." And so we recused ourselves for about half an hour. Came back in, and uh, they said to me, "Marcus, we are so sorry for what happened, and we want you to know that you have our trust as our pastor." I was like, "Oh, wow, good." Th thank you, you know, and I was like, okay, maybe now, maybe now it's over. It might have been over, except that one of the elders, for whatever reason, decided to believe the allegations. And so after that meeting, she started calling people in the congregation and said, Pastor Marcus is into child pornography. And of course, at that point, you know, that's when I was like, oh, it's over, right? There's no coming back from this. As soon as, as, soon as someone is spreading that rumor around. There are going to be people who believe it. Yeah. So I ended up getting voted out of my ch church. Um, now, it wasn't unanimous. And there were, uh, there were a lot of people who were very supportive of me. It was by a margin of two votes that I got voted out. But, you know, the truth is, by that time, I was like... I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, really it had been a few months that, and I had already started looking for other jobs at that point, you know, but I, you know, that was it. Uh, this was in 2000, what is it? 16. Uh, uh, here's another gift. Another grace, uh, was that the next morning I was on a plane to a pastor's retreat in Little Rock, Arkansas, which had been on my calendar for six months already. And so I was like, Lord, you knew I would need that this week. But I tell you what, I did not want to go back into pastoral ministry. <laughs> you know, I shared my story with as many friends, pastor friends as I as I could, and and they all responded with, like, "Oh, Marcus, I'm so sorry." You know, and one of them actually about three or four weeks after all this had happened invited me to come preach at his church as a guest preacher, and uh, uh, you know. 
it was in an email and my first thought was, I, I don't want to do that. I'm, no way. And I told my wife and she said, I think you should do it. I think you should get right back. And I was like, okay. All right. So I did. And actually I ended up really enjoying guest preaching because I could preach and then I could go home <laughs> and not ever have to think about uh, that church again. I ended up going on staff with an organization called Flourish San Diego. And that was a really, really healing experience for me. Uh, the director, executive director of that organization, Jeff Shu, uh, had been a friend for Oh, I'd met him shortly after we came to San Diego. And so I'd known him for about nine years or so at that point. And so he invited me on staff. The challenge there was I had to fundraise my salary. And it was a, actually a good experience, the, the the process of having to do that. And and in some ways was, was very healing because I had some really great conversations with supportive people. And they said, you know, what's going on? Why are you doing this? So I told them the story and they were like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, but it was so good to not be the pastor of a church during that time. And and I would tell people, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to go back into pastoral ministry. My parents would ask me, do you think you'll ever be a pastor again? I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, I interviewed with the church actually during that time at one point. And, um, you know, I went into that interview and this was, this was just a few weeks after, maybe a month or so after uh, things that ended in my last church. And so I was still kind of trying to figure things out. But I went into this interview, but I was like, I don't really care how it turns out, but I'll do the interview, you know. So I went in and I interviewed and, and I talked to a, a, a friend of mine, an older gentleman in another church where I was guest preaching, but I, but I knew this guy. And he said, oh, I heard you interviewed at this other church. I said, yeah, I did. He said, How'd you go? He's, I said, yeah, you know, it went fine. He said, did you reach back out to them? I was like, no, I haven't reached back out. He's like, don't you want it? I was like, yeah, no, not really. He's like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and I actually got feedback months and months later from people who knew about that interview. They said, yeah, you just didn't seem like you were particularly interested. Well, I wasn't, I, I wasn't interested. And so it just felt like the, the thought of going back into a congregation felt like, throwing myself into a snake pit, right? And and the only reason that I'm back in a church now, I mean, that was a process. I did a lot of guest preaching. I started guest preaching at this tiny little church two hours east of San Diego. It's part of our San Diego Presbytery, but it's in Imperial County, which if you watch the news, uh, they show up in the news now and then because the coronavirus is running rampant there, unfortunately, right now. I tell you what, they were so kind to me, this tiny little church of about 30 to 40 people, you know, and uh, the smallest sanctuary I've ever been in. The first time I walked in, I was like, whoa, this is not much bigger than my living room. And, uh, but they were so kind and I'd go about every, you know, maybe twice a month or so. And, and it, w it began to become sort of a healing thing for me as well. And then things started to end at Flourish, not because anything was going wrong, but just because I wasn't able to get myself to full funding financially. You know, a part of my commitment there was that I needed to get to a certain level by a certain time. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to stay on staff there. And so that was all, you know, understandable. But it, it, it was this sense that I, I started to feel like, well, maybe, maybe I could handle a church like this, you know. And so there was this pull towards this particular congregation and a little bit of a push out of Flourish San Diego where I, where I was working. And I just ha felt like, you know, when I announced that I was leaving Flourish, they said, would you be willing to be our 
uh, interim pastor. And I said, well, let's, let's figure it out. Let's see if we can make it work. And so, you know, we had to kind of negotiate some things because I still live in San Diego. I commute two hours to that church and I stay overnight there and they're very small. It's not a full-time position, but it has worked. And I, I love that little church and it feels like a healthy place for me to be. I still, I will, I will tell you, don't feel comfortable with the idea of being a permanent pastor in a congregation. I'm an interim pastor there, right? The thought of becoming the permanent pastor in a church still sets me on edge a little bit. I, I actually, maybe a year and a half ago, interviewed at a few couple other churches, and neither of those worked out. And I, I just kind of feel like I dodged a bullet. <laughs> you know, uh, when I think about what, you know, those churches, they're fine churches, you know, and maybe it would have been f- wonderful. But, you know, when those uh, positions were announced in our presbytery, and, and those pastors were introduced that were hired, I was just like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's the f- feeling that I had. I was like, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad for you. I'm sure they didn't feel that way, but that's how I, I mean, that's kind of where I was coming from. And so, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know what my future holds. I don't know how long I'll be at this church. I've already been there longer than I expected, actually. And who knows, maybe I'll just kind of continue to serve them and do some other things on the side, like writing and podcasting and all that. And I feel like, Right, God used all of this to set me on a new trajectory where I'm not just serving one particular church. Uh, I feel like my calling more now is to serve churches, right? And to help them get healthy, right? To get them focused on what really matters. One of the things that came out of this experience for me was it's like the, uh, the curtains were pulled back on my own narcissism. Maybe that's too strong a word, but maybe not. But just that sense that, you know, when I when I was at that toxic church where things fell apart, I um man, I was so consumed with looking successful, right? With getting more people to show up. And when they didn't, and it's really hard to grow a Presbyterian church these days, like grow in the sense of getting more people to show up, right? It felt like again, there was an attack on my self-worth. I I felt like I was not a good or successful pastor because this year, our average attendance dropped by five people, <laughs> you know, or or ten people, or whatever. And I felt like so much of my energy was poured into how do I look, and and how can you, church member or community person, by showing up or by volunteering, how can you actually help me look better, right? And it it took this like false accusations and what felt like betrayal and, and all of that and, and utter failure. If you're, if you're going to measure failure by, you know, how, how are you doing as a, as a pastor and growing your church and all that? Oh, I didn't, not only did I not grow my church, I got kicked out of my church, right? That's, that looks like failure, right? And so now all of a sudden my, my entire measure of success is different. I would have been ashamed <laughs> years ago to be the pastor of this little church that I'm in now. And now it's not that I'm proud of it. Like pride doesn't, it doesn't figure into the equation. It's just like, this is where I'm called. All right, I'm, I'm going to serve where I'm called. And if that means this tiny little church in uh, little Westmoreland in the farming community of the Imperial Valley, then that's where I'm going to serve, right? And I'm going to, and I want to bless them with 
all of my gifts, you know, wh- whatever, whatever I can offer, I want to give them. And I want to help them, right, discover their belovedness too. And that was one of the things that came out of uh, that really dark time. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Life of the Beloved, he says that when you discover yourself to be God's beloved, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but when you discover yourself to be God's beloved, you you discover, you, you find that you want everyone else to know that they too are God's beloved. And so that's, that's kind of where my uh, my ministry emphasis is these days is you are God's beloved. And then guess what? Out of that, out of that reality, then ministry and mission flow out of that, right? Because then if if your congregation is realizing I'm God's beloved, then guess what? They want other people to know that they're God's beloved and it doesn't become a manipulative thing because it's just about belovedness, right? We're not trying, I always, you know, they track numbers, how many people show up and sometimes they get really excited, you know, hey, you know, we had 80 people this week. Where'd they all come from? I don't know, but uh, uh, isn't that great? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. That's good. I'm really glad they were here. But it's like uh, my my self-worth isn't tied to to that anymore. And I, I have no interest in, in trying to manipulate people. And I and I want to help my people not feel like they have to manipulate people into coming to church. They started a food pantry. Actually, they started it just before I, I started there as their interim pastor. They started it while I was still guest preaching. And I had met with them and I had asked them a question, you know, what do you guys do besides church on Sunday mornings? And this was with the elders. And they're like, oh, no, nothing really. And so one a couple of people, you know, said, well, let's figure out what we can do um, besides Sunday mornings. And so they started this food pantry, which is amazing. And uh, the town of Westmoreland has a lot of food insecurity, meaning people run out of food before the next check comes. And so uh, it has become a wonderful blessing to this town. And, uh, and, and, you know, folks, I was just talking with someone yesterday. They're, they're like, man, thank you so much for opening our eyes to the fact that we're called not just to survive and get people to show up on Sunday mornings, but to actually, you know, love and care for the people of our community. No strings attached, right? There's no expectation that anyone who uh, receives food from the food pantry has to come to church or has to attend any of our events. Uh, you know, occasionally we might put a, a, you know, a little invitation card in there or something like that, but they're totally free to accept or decline any invitation they get, right? Our job is not to convince people or persuade people or, or, or certainly not manipulate people into believing anything, but just to let them know that they are loved by us and if they can discern that they're loved by us, then maybe they'll also believe that there's a God who loves them. So that's kind of where I've landed in terms of what it means to be a pastor these days. It's not about it's not about how many people show up. It's not about how nice is our building. It's not about how big is our budget or how many staff people do I have. I'm the only paid staff at my church. You know, I can't brag about how many staff people I got. <laughs> you know, and it's not about that. It's just about are we are we fulfilling God's desire to bring healing to the world, right? And I think that's why Jesus came. Jesus came, yes, to save us from our sins, but what that means is to make us whole, to make the world whole. And, you know, we don't just go to heaven when we die. We, we participate with God in the healing of the world, you know, through everything that we do, and not just through the spiritual stuff that we do, right, but through all the ordinary, mundane 
even secular things that we do, you know, in our jobs and not by witnessing on the job, but just by doing our job well, right? Whatever, if you're a mechanic, doing your work well, you are bringing healing to the world because you're helping people have cars that work, right? So that they can go to work and feed their families, right? You can say about any job, if you're a garbage collector, you are participating with God in the healing of the world by keeping our world free of junk, <laughs> you know, and making it beautiful and so that people can breathe clean air around them. And and when we look at parts of the world where that isn't happening, we're, we're like, that's not what God wants for the world, right? And so uh, one of the things I try to help my, our people understand is that, look, you have been called to participate with God in the healing of the world in in just the ordinary things that you do, whether or not you actually speak the words of uh, about Jesus, you know, the gospel or whatever. Listen, the gospel is in the way you live your life. And um, anyway, I could keep going, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, I, I love that you've ended up in such a healthy place and that the church seems to be such a beautiful expression of Christ in that community. Yeah. I, I do have to ask you, though, I think that a lot of us who have gone through difficult seasons in church life, especially in church leadership. Uh, a lot of us end up bitter and cynical, but I don't detect any of that in you at all. How have you dealt with the resentment towards your accuser? You know, I was, uh, I was, this was maybe two or three years ago. I was driving freeway and I was listening to Pete Scazzaro's podcast. Pete Scazzaro wrote a great book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He asked in, in that podcast, he said, are you able to pray for your enemies? And I was like, nope. <laughs> and, uh, but then I was like, uh, I guess I have to. And so, you know, in that moment I was like, okay, Lord, I don't really want to pray for these people, uh, but I pray for so-and-so. I'm not, I'm not praying anything particular for them, but I'll pray for them. I pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and um, you know, that helped. I, I do pray. I don't pray all the time for th these, you know, the folks that, uh, you know, particularly the accuser or the accusers uh, and those who spread those, those lies. I don't always pray by name for them, but sometimes. And you know, when I'll be totally honest, so the the person who made these accusations to me, the reason she made them was because she was telling me about her husband's pornography problem. This is just in our kind of biweekly, you know, staff catch up time, and I and and it was it sounded awful, terrible, like what she was describing to me and the kind of pornography that he was into, and. And she had shared with me in the past that she had been abused by her father. And uh, so there was a lot behind, you know, these accusations. What I found out later is that the reason, like she had told someone, you know, when I was telling Pastor Marcus about my husband's pornography problem, he just didn't react the way I was expecting him to. I bet he's got a problem with that too. I don't know how I re re responded. I don't know what it was that set her off, but... You know, when I think about her, she's a broken person. I, I, it was unhealthy and sinful, I would say. It was wrong of her to make these accusations without any evidence and to keep driving at these accusations over and over. It was very hurtful and harmful to me, but uh, she's a beloved child of God. Maybe I'll see her again and maybe she'll say, 
didn't mean to do that. <laughs> or maybe I did, but I shouldn't have, and I'm really sorry. I, I don't know. Um, right? We're all we're all broken, and we're all loved. And uh, I guess maybe that helps to give me some some perspective. I think people do things like this because they've been hurt in some way. They feel triggered in some way, and and sometimes that hurt and that triggering leads to damage uh, in other people's lives. In my case, it led to damage in my life. But um, and and you know what? And I don't want to hold on to that bitterness. Like that makes my life crappy. <laughs> I'd rather just uh, just go on and thank God that He brought me through and that He used this to transform me and yeah, and be who I was called to be, you know. Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. In light of uh, your experience with these false accusations, I'd really love to hear your take on the current cancel culture moment we seem to be in in our society. Well, I will admit that whenever accusations are made against someone. So, you know, it's I have two two true reactions. I think my gut reaction is always oh, man, I hope they get that person for what they did. And then there's a part of me after a, a moment or two, I'm like, but we don't know exactly what they did. Um, and so let's, I, I don't, I'm I'm hesitant to judge. And, and it makes me sad, a little bit angry that we are unwilling to forgive people even when they do something wrong. I, I, I'm scared <laughs> a little bit to say this because, right, then I, uh, the fear is that I come across as defending people who have done great wrong, right, who have been abusive or exploitive or whatever. And that's not my intent. But, you know, I think there has to be a place for grace and restoration, even for those who have done done things wrong uh, if there is repentance if there is a changing of mind right repentance means to change your mind to change the way you think to change the way you live your life if there is a change and it's it's legitimate and it's true we have to have a, a place for forgiveness i think there's a place for holding people to account for sure if they've done something uh, wrong if if they have wounded people there is a place for accountability but there also has to be a place for restoration i mean that's what that's that's why Jesus came, right? He came to restore us. I, I want to just be clear for our listeners. We're not talking about anyone who has abused, having an opportunity to continue in their abuse. We're not talking about anybody who's exploited a relationship to continue to be able to do that. Yes. We're not saying somebody who stole yes. from the church should have an opportunity to steal from the church again. We're not saying any of that. We're saying that the gospel brings restoration. Yes. And that there needs to be room for forgiveness uh, in, in our systems. That's right. Okay. Marcus, I'm so grateful for this time that you've given me here today and spent with us, uh, our listeners. Um, would you talk to us about your podcast? What led you to start Spiritual Life and Leadership? <laughs> That's a great question. So, you know, I, uh, I'd been thinking about starting a podcast while I was working in Flourish, San Diego, and it uh, never quite worked out there. And then after, so I had a few months after leaving Flourish to when I started at uh, at the church that I'm at now. And I had actually interviewed with another church for a full-time position. It was much closer, only about 10 minutes from my house. And I I'd guest preached there a few times, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get that job. And then I didn't. And I remember I had taken my, my daughter and her friend to a Harry Styles concert up in L.A. You know Harry Styles from One Direction, little boy band guy? Absolutely, yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. a teenage girl. So. There you go, there you go. So we were <laughs> driving home, and they were falling asleep in, in the backseat. They were like, 10 years old at the time and uh 
Taylor Swift is on uh, Pandora because that's what they were listening to. And and then and I'm just reflecting on the fact that I didn't get that job that I expected I was going to. But I knew that this church in Westmoreland wanted me, uh, even though and, you know, it was a part time position, not as ideal in that regard as I was hoping for. But then I thought, well, Lord, what do I do with all that, you know, with that extra time that I'm going to have? Oh, it's time to start my podcast. Got it. <laughs> so uh, that was the moment I decided to start it. You know, my my passion now is healthy leadership um, coming up from a place of deep union with Jesus. And so that's why I call it spiritual life and leadership. It's about it's about the spiritual life, right? Our connection with God, uh, our, our walk with God, and being filled with uh, with God and God's love, and that being the driving force of our life, and then and leadership and everything that uh, comes, you know, and that our leadership would flow out of that. So sometimes we talk about spiritual formation. Sometimes we talk about leadership, kind of basic leadership stuff. And sometimes we bring them both together in the same conversation. You know, I had you on. Uh, actually, your episode as we record this is going to be on next week. Uh, so <laughs> ours was more of a spiritual formation kind of a conversation. I love those conversations because spiritual leaders, pastors need to focus on that. Too often, we just read leadership books. And we don't read books like Surrender to Love, right? Or Life of the Beloved. And we need that part too. So that's what, that's what the podcast is about. And uh, I've loved being, to, uh, being able to do it for about the last two years now. It's an awesome opportunity to have some great conversations that we wouldn't otherwise get. And I'm so grateful for this conversation with you, Marcus. Thank you so much for your time today. Could you tell our listeners what's the best way to engage with you, your podcast, and how can they get your book? Yeah, yeah. So I'll mention my book real quick. So I wrote this book, Beyond Thingification, over the last few years. And also, it came out of came out of some of my Doctor of Ministry work a few years ago, out of my time with Flourish San Diego, and out of my experience at that church. But the idea is beyond thingification. Churches need to not thingify people anymore, um, like objectify, right? A lot of times, and I kind of touched on this, we objectify people. They become a means to our end. We are called not to just try to get our churches to be bigger and better, but to help our people live into the mission of God. And so I talk about a process uh, that I developed called vocational connection groups which help people to engage in their communities, pay attention to people that they encounter and pay attention uh, to God and what God might already be doing. And then, and then, you know, they come together, this group, and they discern how is God inviting us to to get involved in what God is already doing in our community rather than us trying to come up with the next great thing that's going to make us look good, right? So that's what the book is about. Beyond Thingification, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can uh, find my podcast, uh, you know, wherever you find podcasts, Spiritual Life and Leadership. And then uh, you can also check out my website, www.marcuswatson.com. And that's Marcus with a K, Marcus with a K. <laughs> Friends, we're going to link to Marcus's website, to a link on the Amazon site for Marcus's book, and also to his podcast. And I hope you will take advantage of those resources. Reach out to Marcus. He's a fantastic guy. And I, I love your heart, Marcus. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks, Jason. It's been great to be here. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at messyspirituality.org. 
can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Mm-hmm.